Welcome to Skim This. This week, we're diving right into the headlines. We'll tell you why Facebook is upholding its ban on former President Trump, why a federal judge is putting a stop to a nationwide pause on evictions, and why people are protesting in Colombia. Then, President Biden just announced a major policy shift that could impact global vaccine supply. We'll tell you why, and also break down the debate over vaccine mandates here in the U.S. Also, have you heard of the YOLO economy? It may hit closer to home than you think. We'll also get into the space race between the king of YOLO, Elon Musk, and his rival Jeff Bezos. And finally, it's almost Mother's Day. But instead of flowers, moms are really looking for people to listen. We'll pass them the mic. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. Let's skim this. All right, let's get to a couple of the headlines from the week's news and give you some context on what's going on. First up. Breaking news from Facebook. The social media company's oversight board has decided not to allow former President Trump back on the platform. And here's some context. Facebook, along with Twitter, banned former President Trump from their platforms after the January 6th riot at the Capitol, basically saying Trump was adding fuel to the fire. But while Twitter banned Trump's account forever, Facebook's ban was temporary and subject to review by a Facebook-appointed oversight board made up of journalists, activists, and lawyers. This week, the oversight board said, let's uphold this ban for now, but that Facebook has to make the final call on what to do about Trump's account within the next six months. This all comes as Trump, who's reportedly mulling a 2024 presidential race, is trying to influence the future of the Republican Party. He's launched a new blog to start communicating with Americans again and is shaking up next year's midterm elections by trying to defeat Republicans who spoke out against him in January. It's still TBD what the Trump effect on the Republican Party will be long term, but for the next six months, you probably won't see him on Facebook. Next up. On Wednesday, a federal judge said the CDC's national moratorium on evictions isn't legal. Here's what you need to know. Last year, the CDC banned most evictions nationwide. It said we have the authority to do lots of things to stop the spread of disease, including not kicking people out of their homes. President Trump signed off on the move, and President Biden has tried to extend it through June. But that's where things got complicated. The Alabama Association of Realtors sued, alleging the CDC doesn't have the authority to ban evictions, And this week, the federal judge ruling on that case said, the realtors are right, the CDC's eviction moratorium was an overreach. That ruling is now being appealed by the Department of Justice. But in the meantime, a lot of people are being left in uncertain positions. The U.S. Census Bureau estimates millions of people are currently behind on rent. And this week's ruling could kick off the first wave of legal evictions that housing experts have feared since the start of the pandemic unless local or state governments step in with their own eviction bans. Okay, here's our final headline. Months of frustrations have boiled over onto the streets of Colombia's biggest cities. Demonstrations marred by violence, which left over a dozen people dead and many hundreds injured. The United Nations denounces the excessive use of force by security officers in Colombia. Numerous deaths reported since anti-government protests broke out. Here's the context. Protests have been taking place across major cities in the South American nation of Colombia since last Wednesday. 
They started because of proposed tax reforms, which would have forced more lower-income people to pay income tax, and which removed a number of key tax exemptions. Unions organized protests, saying the bill would affect low-wage workers, and middle-class Colombians also joined in, saying they'd be hurt too. On Sunday, Colombian President Ivan Duque announced he was withdrawing the bill, but that didn't really matter. Protesters said, we actually want improvements to pensions, education, and healthcare. Raising tensions even more? According to Colombian authorities, at least 23 protesters and one police officer have been killed during the protests. The UN and Amnesty International have condemned police violence against protesters, while the government has blamed violence on rebel groups. Colombia's government says it wants to listen to citizens and construct solutions. They'll need to act fast, as protests continue and experts warn anti-government protests in Colombia could spread to neighboring countries. Next up, did you hear this headline this week? The White House now says that it supports waiving the intellectual property protections for the COVID-19 vaccines. Basically, the White House is saying the recipes and techniques that drug companies like Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J use to develop their COVID vaccines shouldn't be company secrets any longer. No surprise, some drug companies aren't pleased. They spend a ton of money inventing drugs and vaccines and use patents to maintain a temporary monopoly on producing them. Drug companies say this makes it worth their while to invent things in the first place. Meanwhile, a number of countries around the world celebrated Biden's move. Since last year, they've been saying these patents are a barrier and prioritize companies' profits ahead of public health. So what's the deal here? Here's the answer in 60 seconds. In a reversal of President Trump's position, President Biden is joining around 100 countries in calling for this COVID patent pause. Supporters say this will let smaller drug companies manufacture doses and speed up vaccine rollout, especially in Africa. Africa has received few doses and is relying on an international group called COVAX to supply more. But India was making most of those doses and it just stopped all vaccine exports as it battles COVID. So waiving patent protections could open up the vaccine floodgates. And it's not like companies like Pfizer and Moderna have been struggling. They've made a lot of money from governments eager to pay up to get vaccines. So maybe they don't need a monopoly anymore. But critics argue drug companies race to develop vaccines in record time in part because their inventions would be protected. And since vaccine tech is complex, sharing it with more companies could lead to quality or safety issues. So this debate is heated. And while it might sound like drug companies are the losers here, all 164 countries in the World Trade Organization have to agree on waiving patents for it to happen. Whatever comes next, we'll keep you posted. How'd we do? Want us to skim another topic from the week's news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. While many parts of the world struggle with getting any vaccines at all, the U.S. is dealing with different problems. More than half of U.S. adults have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. But experts are now warning the U.S. may never be able to reach herd immunity, thanks to new variants and vaccine hesitancy. So if herd immunity isn't a realistic endgame anymore, what is? Public health experts say the more people who have the vaccine, the better and the more normal life can be. President Biden might have received that memo, because this week he announced a new goal, 
getting 70% of U.S. adults to have at least one COVID shot by the 4th of July. And while it's TBD if we can hit that, a lot of places aren't taking a wait-and-see approach. A growing number of businesses and colleges are reopening their doors, but only if people get the vaccine. If that approach works, it could help the U.S. hit that 70% target. But it's also creating a political minefield, and a legal one, as people ask, can my school or my boss even do that? So let's break down both sides of this debate, starting with the arguments for vaccine mandates. The first one you'll hear is pretty simple. Vaccines keep people safe from COVID-19, and requiring them at schools or in the office means safer environments for learning or working. Last year, after COVID-19 spread around college campuses and then into surrounding communities, over 100 colleges and universities are now saying, you're gonna need to get the vaccine or go somewhere else for school. Think of this like an argument about freedom. But it's not the freedom to choose to get the shot or not. It's the reverse, that people who refuse to get vaccinated actually inhibit other people's freedom to be healthy. Like, sure, college-age kids are maybe less at risk for COVID, but they may go infect an older lady in town. The second argument in favor of vaccine mandates is that they'll increase the pace of vaccinations overall. Basically, if the list of things you can't do without a vaccine gets longer, more people might just say, all right, fine, I'm in. Public health experts like Dr. Lavanya Vasudevan, who was on our show last week, think mandates can help unvaccinated people change their thinking. I think mandates help overcome complacency. There are a lot of individuals who just don't take the effort to get vaccinated. So having mandates basically tells people, here's your deadline, you know, figure out a way to go get vaccinated. So those are the arguments in favor of vaccine mandates. The arguments against? You may have heard that because COVID-19 vaccines haven't been fully approved, you can't actually legally mandate them. Quick reminder, the Moderna, Pfizer, and J&J shots were authorized as part of an emergency use authorization, which means even though people can receive them, these vaccines haven't gone through the FDA's full regulatory approval process yet. That's an important distinction to make between COVID vaccines and other vaccines that are fully FDA licensed, like the ones for tetanus or hepatitis, which many colleges and some workplaces mandate. Whether you can be legally mandated to get a vaccine that only has emergency use authorization is legally pretty murky. There's no real precedent here, so this question may have to get resolved in a courtroom. A second argument against mandates comes from some public health experts who worry mandates will just erode trust in the public health system, which has already started to decline. They say if people are hesitant or scared of getting the shot, but feel forced to because they don't want to lose their job or risk their education, they'll become more distrustful of the public health system. And given the importance, both now and in the future, of people trusting medical experts, maybe mandates are a bit heavy-handed. And a final argument against requiring the COVID vaccine? They don't allow people to make choices about their own health and well-being, which could be considered unethical especially if certain people don't have access to the vaccine due to existing inequities in healthcare. So where does that leave us? 
Without a lot of clarity about what's legally allowed or even effective, a lot of government and public health officials, as well as business leaders, are trying things out on the fly. Some workplaces, including hospitals and restaurants, are turning to mandates. While elsewhere, public health officials are encouraging people to get vaxxed instead of mandating it. And on the more extreme side, some states are even looking to pass laws banning mandates. Legal experts are already preparing to see a number of vaccine mandates get challenged in court. So this debate that's going down in the court of public opinion may actually get settled in a court of law. A few weeks ago, we came across a headline that was pretty interesting. Welcome to the YOLO economy. You remember YOLO, right? You only live once, that's the motto, nigga, YOLO. You only live once, YOLO. YOLO! We all know what it means to say YOLO before going on a spontaneous trip or buying a new dress for a wedding when you didn't really need one. But what exactly does the YOLO economy mean? The YOLO economy is a set of workers who are deciding that now is the time to step off the career treadmill and pursue their dreams. That's Kevin Roos, a tech columnist for The New York Times and the author of the YOLO economy article that's gone viral. Roos says he started researching this article after a bunch of his friends started YOLOing. There was one weekend when like three people I knew called me and were like, hey, I'm going to quit my job to do something crazy, start a startup or travel. <laughs> they were all in these kind of cushy, stable jobs. One guy said he was in the middle of a Zoom meeting and he was just like, I can't do another Zoom meeting. <laughs> like, like, I just can't do this anymore. And he just decided then and there to quit his job. But I have heard also from people who have been in much, much worse situations. And one woman I talked to for this story was burnt out from covering the pandemic. She was a reporter and she'd spent a year covering just awful stories of sort of death and grief and loss. And she just quit and moved and reset her life. Even if both of those people quit their jobs because of the pandemic, the underlying motivations that led them there are pretty different. And they fall into two camps. The adventure YOLOs and the crisis YOLOs. There ranges from people who are doing pretty well and, and not experiencing that much difficulty all the way to people who just can't do it anymore. And there are definitely both. And there are people who feel both, who feel like they're in crisis and the only solution is to do something wild and crazy. A.K.A. a tale of two YOLOs. Some people have reached peak boredom and are craving adventure after months on their couch, while others are suffering from unprecedented levels of workplace burnout and declining mental health. And when a generation of workers has that attitude towards work and money, it creates a YOLO economy. And you can see it all over YouTube. The last 10 years of my life has been being cowardly and not being strong enough to say, actually, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to do this. No amount of money is worth losing yourself over. If you're a zombie and can't sleep, who cares about six figures? Last month, I quit my job in the middle of a pandemic. And yes, it's scary. I don't know what the future holds, but I'm excited. We should note, while a lot of YOLOing workers tend to have more stable, high-income jobs, Roos says he's observed a YOLO mindset in all different industries. 
restaurants, trucking companies, a lot of businesses are having trouble finding workers right now because workers are being choosier about what they will do. They were saying, I don't want to go back to that job that pays minimum wage and is going to put me in the line of fire when it comes to COVID. And now they have stimulus checks and enhanced unemployment benefits that allow them to be a little bit pickier and to not take the first thing that comes along. In fact, even though wages have grown in the U.S., job vacancies are at a two-decade high. There may be a lot of factors that contribute to those stats, but workers being more selective may play a role. All this means that employers have started to get kind of nervous now that employees are the ones with a lot of leverage. Right now, what you're seeing is companies bracing themselves for record turnover. Something like 40% of workers in surveys say that they plan to change jobs this year. Q, companies trying a bunch of tactics to keep people from setting their Slack status to away forever. Maybe you've read about some businesses literally throwing money at the problem by giving their employees workout class subscriptions, more days off, or even just plain cash. But it's still TBD if these office appeasement strategies will actually work. I think a lot of people are going to use their leverage either to demand huge raises or promotions Or they're just going to say, you know what, I don't want your money. I want to go do something I'm passionate about. Roos told us, while employees definitely have the upper hand right now, not every professional or financial risk does pay off. Remember that investing trend earlier this year? GameStop. 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 Some people won big, betting their savings on a risky video game store, while others lost big. Oh, I just lost 1,500 bucks. Roos says there are people within the YOLO economy for whom the risk of losing it all isn't really a concern. I call it the nothing matters YOLO. It's like this very bleak Gen Z attitude toward risk and reward. There is no such thing as like working your way up the ladder. Like the ladder's gone. And so you might as well buy some GameStop stock because if you hit it big, it pays off and you're a millionaire on GameStop stock. And if it doesn't, then you're broke anyway. And you're living with your parents anyway. Stepping back from people's particular brand of YOLO, we wanted to know what happens when a generation of workers has this new mindset towards work, money, and time. What does that mean for the future of work and the economy for all of us? I think our attitude toward risk is going to change a lot and already is changing a lot. And you see that beyond the sort of YOLO economy stuff. I mean, you see that in retail investors trading stocks and people being willing to risk huge amounts of money on crypto and joining very risky early stage startups. So I think you'll see a lot of entrepreneurism. I think you'll see a lot of people trying new, strange, interesting things. I think that's part of what the roaring 20s economists are talking about is that people just aren't going to be satisfied clocking in, clocking out, getting a paycheck. They're really going to want something that they're passionate about. Finally, we had to ask, what's been Roos's biggest YOLO over the past year? Turns out... I'm a pretty risk-averse guy. <laughs> oh, that's that's very interesting. <laughs> Which is why I'm, I'm a journalist and not a <laughs> crypto trader. Um, I, I'm not a big YOLO guy. If you have a recommendation for a YOLO that I should try, I would love to hear it. Mostly, I'm living vicariously through my friends right now. All right. Well, he may not be the biggest YOLOer. We wanted to know how many of you are. If this segment reminded you of a YOLO from your own life, let us know. Send us an email to audio at theskim.com. 
before we completely move on from YOLOing, we needed to talk about someone in the news. Someone whose approach to investing, tweeting, and podcast interviews could definitely be described as, screw it, I'm doing it my way. Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Tech billionaire Elon Musk. He's been the hype man for the cryptocurrency Dogecoin, and even calls himself the Doge father. His electric car company Tesla just posted a big profit, and his rocket company SpaceX recently won a major NASA contract to bring the U.S. back to the moon. Yeah, that's a big deal. NASA takes contracts seriously, especially when the safety of astronauts is at stake. But that sort of begs the question, is NASA really giving the keys to human spaceflight to a guy who released an auto-tuned rap tribute to the gorilla Harambe? I think if Elon Musk's persona hasn't jeopardized SpaceX and its work yet, it's not going to. That's Marina Corin. She's a reporter at The Atlantic who covers the space industry. You know, Elon is hosting SNL this weekend, which is going to be an interesting watch. And I don't think that's going to mean anything. He's very out there. And I've talked to people who work at NASA who just kind of sigh when he does something particularly outlandish, like smoke weed on a podcast. He does like pretty crazy things, but it's very separate from what SpaceX is doing. He can tweet about cryptocurrency on the day of a launch of a SpaceX vehicle and nothing will happen. That's just the world we live in now, which is a little bit crazy, right? <laughs> and NASA isn't just awarding contracts to SpaceX because there's no competition. There is competition from a rival called Blue Origin. Its founder is Jeff Bezos, also the founder of Amazon. Blue Origin, the space company, is the most important work I'm doing. While Musk might be the most obvious YOLOer, Bezos has a YOLO streak too, launching Amazon Prime in 2005 when some people reportedly thought it could bankrupt the company. And in 2014, he released an iPhone competitor called Firephone. Like the Fire Festival, it completely flopped. But Amazon claimed its losses as a tax write-down, and Bezos says it was a good learning experience. YOLO! So forget the quiet heroes of the first space race. This new one is in the hands of a pair of billionaires. Jeff Bezos is the richest person in the world. Elon Musk is the second richest. We're at the point where the world's wealthiest people are kind of the gatekeepers into space. So far, Musk is beating Bezos at the space game, which NASA made clear last month when it awarded SpaceX that almost $3 billion contract to land the next Americans on the moon. A lot of people were expecting NASA to choose two recipients for this contract, which is what it's done in the past, you know, in the spirit of competition. But NASA ended up giving the whole contract to SpaceX, only SpaceX. Elon Musk was thrilled about that. Now he can really accelerate his work on getting to the moon, which in turn accelerates his work on getting to Mars. But Jeff Bezos was not happy about that. Eventually, Corin says Bezos and Blue Origin can still leave their mark on outer space. And Bezos is probably pretty inspired to keep going. I mean, how's this for motivation? In addition to losing the NASA contract, Bezos was on the receiving end of one of Elon Musk's Twitter burns when the SpaceX founder joked that Bezos, quote, couldn't get it up to orbit. But if this YOLO-fueled, male-ego-driven space race feels a bit exhausting, basically everyone feels that way. And it's not the only reason to be concerned that the two richest men on Earth have their sights set on other planets. 
Some climate activists and ethicists worry that Musk and Bezos' focus on taking humans out of this world is kind of a cop-out when there's enough to worry about fixing here. And Corin, who swears she doesn't write science fiction novels in her spare time, says that's not the only dystopian subplot of this new space race. If you want to go into space, whether you're just like going on a quick trip with Blue Origin or you're going to Mars for Elon Musk's like dream city, you're probably going to be a rich person. And all of these efforts are going to require workers and support staff and other personnel. Like if you really want to think about it way out into the future, you have a Mars city, you're going to have Mars workers. It's early, but it's important to talk about now. Like what happens when the people who are running these space habitats are also known for running companies on Earth and those companies have poor track records when it comes to workers' rights and providing meaningful support to workers. And then in that future, workers are dependent on them for their livelihoods, but also quite literally for life support. And that's just a, a scary thought. You can read Marina Korn's reporting on space and sometimes her dark predictions about the future at theatlantic.com. We're ending the show this week with a quick PSA for anyone who needs a reminder. This Sunday is Mother's Day. And while we recommend picking up a card and giving the mom in your life a call, moms need a lot more than gifts right now. Here at The Skim, we asked millennial moms to tell us how the past year has been. And the majority of the responses we got sounded something like this. The last year as a mom <laughs> has been more than one year. <laughs> One of the most overwhelmingly exhausting times of my entire life. <laughs> exhausting? I don't have the energy to put it in a whole sentence. <laughs> One of the most common experiences that skimmers told us about was that work-life balance got even harder when home was work and work was home. And having everyone under one roof 24-7 has meant kids started showing up at the office. Everyone has seen our children in like different princess outfits or different various stages of nudity, like in the background. That's Jessica. She's a pediatrician and a mom of four. And she's one of the 70% of mothers we spoke to who says she's still working full time compared to 85% of mothers before the pandemic. Jessica says she's lucky for other reasons. Her job offers some flexibility. Her husband has also been working from home and helping out and her mom's nearby too. But she says the pandemic's highlighted how many people it actually takes to work and raise kids at the same time, something she's felt the need to share. I think group texts became kind of my sanity. All of us in a very similar boat and being able to vent and connect that way has helped out so much. That made me very much appreciate the village that I have helping me raise my kids. But village or not, 56% of moms who responded to our survey said, Hold up, I'm still doing the majority of the childcare here. I am a mom too, one spunky two and a half year old. Meet Sammy. Her job went remote last March and is still remote. And for her, that's meant the loss of the daycare her office provided. Now I'm still trying to get a full-time job done while also full-time caring for a little human who cannot care for herself. Having two full-time jobs is just as exhausting as it sounds. And 70% of moms told us they've frequently felt exhausted. Straddling full-time work and full-time parenting has left Sammy, like a lot of other moms, feeling like any choice she makes is the wrong one. 
I either had to make a conscious choice of I'm going to step away from my work for a couple hours so I can focus on my daughter and make sure that she's getting the things that she needs. Or I make this conscious decision that I'm going to let my daughter have her tablet and she's going to have way more screen time than I ever imagined <laughs> would even be possible for a two-year-old. Sammy says other moments that could have been saving graces also got put on the back burner. There really wasn't time for me in that whole year period. There wasn't time for my relationship with my husband. They're still dealing with the mental gymnastics of that kind of like guilt that is really easy to feel as a mom. Moms also told us nobody's actively trying to help them, whether that's the government, their office, or their kid's school. That lack of proactive support means moms have the added burden of having to ask for help on top of everything else on their to-do list, as Rochelle, a single mom to a nine-year-old, found out this year. I definitely felt that in my daughter's school. From the get-go, there was no help. They're like, oh, just let us know if you need anything. And I was like, I don't know what to ask for. If I knew what to ask for, I would ask for it. They're trying to be accommodating and helpful, but they're not giving me any resources. They're not trying to make it easier on me or figure out the situation. Speaking of a lack of problem solving, a lot of moms told us they haven't been impressed with the government's response. The stimulus checks were not that helpful when there was nobody I could pay to watch my kids. That's Stacy, the Skims finance editor. She says a lot of the challenges she's dealt with are bigger structural problems she doesn't have the solution for. But that's where she hoped the government could have come in. I don't think it should fall to parents or mothers to figure that out. That's where I would hope that other people, smarter people than me, could look at the system and figure out where the shortcomings are and figure out how to fill those gaps for us. That would be huge. Even after hearing some of your stories, we recognize we're just scratching the surface when it comes to putting a spotlight on the burden on parents. So this Mother's Day, we wanted to thank those moms for sharing their stories with us and for telling us what Mother's Day means to them. Here's Stephanie. I think it's a day to just recognize the invisible weight on mothers. When I was a kid, it was just another day, right? It was like honoring my mom, getting her flowers, getting her a gift, something like that. But now it's just a day where it's just like, wow. Um, sorry, getting a little emotional here. It's just, uh, it's, a, it's a really special day to just like recognize the invisible load of motherhood that often doesn't get like put at the surface. It's just a, it's a gratitude day for me. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Kira Long. This episode was engineered by Andrew Calloway and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. 